Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This is a special segment on this program, and it's going to be for the entirety of the hour, because we have the opportunity and the honor to speak with two men, two Israeli men, with five of their fellow residents of a kibbutz by the name of Rhyme, which was attacked by dozens of Hamas terrorists on the 7th of October, fought off these terrorists. Now, as I've been telling you, the kibbutz lost civilians to murder and kidnapping. And I've seen video this morning, and I watched it several times, of a heavy, what appears to be steel gate, just opening as though somebody had the controls. And clearly somebody did have the controls. And waiting to come in were pickup trucks filled with Hamas terrorists with RPGs and automatic weapons. And they were there to commit murder, to commit rape, and to kidnap. And seven men stood up to them. And two of these men join us now on The Roy Green Show, Ilan Cohen and Harel Oren. Mr. Cohen, Mr. Oren, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for hosting us in your program. Thank you. You are incredibly brave, and uh, I have tremendous respect for you and the other five men who stood to defend your your community. Can you tell us a bit about the kibbutz, about Rhyme? How large is it? How many residents? Tell us a bit about it, please. Look, kibbutz Reim first. Kibbutz Reim uh, means Reim. Reim in Hebrew, it's, it's a bunch of uh, close people, like uh, friends. Okay? Mm-hmm. In kibbutz Reim, we, had, uh, we have uh, 430 uh, people living in. Kibbutz is a way of life of uh, like uh, sharing and uh, being together and uh, all the we live by by each other in a community and uh, support each other. This is the idea of the kibbutz. So it's a very closely knit group of people who live together in the community. Yeah, kibbutz it's uh, like a huge family that we all working for the same idea. We uh, support each other uh, like a big family. This is the idea of the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. How close? Agriculture, agriculture, uh, a living way. How- now, on the day of the seventh in October, uh, we actually uh, uh, locked our wives and kids in uh, the warriors. The we locked our wife and kids inside the shelter and went to protect the kibbutz. Mm-hmm. Went to protect the most. We we was very worried about our family, but it was important to uh, to go there and uh, to stand against this uh, terrorist. Can you tell us, please, what? How did the day begin before the horror started? How did the morning of October the 7th begin? What, what would your plans have been for the day? It was uh, 6 30 morning. We wake up to the noise of the launching missile all over Israel. 
Uh, it is uh, morning of uh, Saturday after, uh, in the middle of uh, holiday, which is uh, uh, the end of reading the Torah. And we are supposed to celebrate this day. Uh, it's, it's an holiday in Israel, and uh, we wake up to the noise of the missiles uh, launching all over. Uh, and then the siren that uh, uh, inform us that we are under attack. Uh, I understand immediately that uh, they launch missiles all over. This is kind of uh, destruction for invasion. This is what we understand in the first beginning of 6.30 in the morning, October the 7th. I have to say, I have to say that uh, my plans were uh, to take my uh, bicycle and go and ride in our uh, beautiful uh, area, which is now uh, pretty dry, but it's uh, good weather to ride a bike uh, uh, outside the country. Yeah. And, so it was going to be a normal day. It was going to be a good day for you, one you were going to enjoy before the horror began at 6.30. Now, I understand that you had a bit of a warning for the kibbutz that things were not good before the Hamas terrorist gunman arrived. Somebody had heard gunshots, and uh, that gave you a little bit of a warning. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, in the, our kibbutz... Uh a member called me and she told me that uh, her brother family drove from our kibbutz to the next kibbutz and uh, they've been shot by terrorist troops. Uh, it's not normal. Uh, we never expect that the terrorists will cross the fence and it was, you know, it's uh, supposed to be a very uh, huge fence, unpenetrated fence. And uh, they've been shot, they injured, and uh, we are in a, a new horrible day to wake up. Citizen and under attack. Yeah. There is, a, there is another thing. The shooting uh, happened simultaneously with the, with the bombing and the laundering. That was the cue. For them to uh, go inside uh, Israel, like uh, breaking through into Israel through the fence. So I, I saw this video, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, and I've said it a few times today. I saw the video of Hamas arriving in the pickup trucks. They had a whole bunch of pickup trucks, and they had several, or five or six men on each truck. They had RPGs. They had. Uh, automatic weapons, and they seemed quite relaxed. They weren't rushing to get uh, into the truck and get going, and they managed it, and clearly the gate swung open, the gate slid open to your yeah. kibbutz. How did, yeah, they do, how did they defeat the security system? Do you know? Yeah, I will correct you. Uh, each pickup, they were between five to ten uh, terrorists, okay? Mm -hmm. um, now they arrived to the kibbutz and they knew where is the bottom to press on to open the gate. It's uh, unfortunately, there are people that uh, commit to humanitarian and to have a good living and we support them. We used to uh, bring them to work in our place, in our houses. 
in this case, they collect intelligence, information. They know exactly how to penetrate the kibbutz without making any noise, like they are uh, part of the kibbutz. And this information went from the Palestinian workers to the Hamas uh, terrorists. And that's how they got in. Yeah. And more than that, uh, it's not just that they knew how to come in. They had maps with, uh, with all the houses of the kibbutz. They knew where, who, where lives. They knew the, to, to come to, the, to my house to find the, the head of, uh, of the first response, uh, 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 first response uh, squad. squad. And uh, they was looking for us. There they was a tent to finish me or to kill me first. And then they will have the, all the time in the, in the world to, to kill the rest of the kibbutz. So why did they want to kill you first? Again, sorry? Why did they want to kill uh, your, your colleague, your friend first? Because uh, we are carrying a rifle. And the, we are the uh, force that is supposed to fight with them until the army uh, arriving. Okay. In this case, they, they know that if they will neutralize us, they can take all the kibbutz under uh, attack. attack. Not just that, in our kibbutz, the, all the, the first uh, response squad, they have the weapons at home. There was kibbutzes that the weapons was uh, concentrated in one house, and uh, we had to go to this house and then, then give the the weapons to the warriors. Okay, in our kibbutz it was not like that. All the warriors had their weapons and the equipment and the radio at home. So when we was uh, calling them to go to come out, there was. Uh, warriors from the first second. Okay, there were seven of you. Yes, there were seven of, of against, us. Against 50 or 60 or more. Yeah, uh, about uh, 80 terrorists that penetrated to our kibbutz. Uh, finally, at the end, we uh, count 48 terrorists that the bodies that we took out. Uh, we were seven uh, with uh, Arel, who's uh, the in charge for the security team. He's the commander. Uh, we had a, a very tough uh, battle or fight, and uh, we make the difference. We were very low, very small, uh, without the very good weapon that uh, the Hamas terrorists came with, the RPG and the hand grenade uh, uh, gun. And uh, I think Arel made a very good job to save our kibbutz. You did an amazing job, seven of you, against 80 terrorists, approximately 80 terrorists then, with RPGs, automatic weapons, and, and hand grenades. And they were, uh, they were in the act of committing murders and, and kidnappings. 
and and you intercepted them, the seven of you. It must have been a, it must have been a, I mean, I can't imagine the, the odds that you were facing and, and you, and you took, you took out 40, about 48 of them, you said. Yeah. Look, yeah, we, we took less than 48. The army that came to, uh, to, uh, to, to support us and to uh, fight beside us, it took the most, of course, because okay. they had uh, better uh, training, better uh, weapons, they had uh, grenades. So uh, when the army came, uh, most, of the, most of the fight uh, finished in one and a half hour. We Te- was standing alone for five hours. Yeah, tell us, a, tell us a bit about the fight that you were engaged in. Share with my listeners across Canada a bit about how you how you took on the terrorists for five hours alone. What, what were you doing? How did you manage that? I want to te- to say uh, to the people of Canada and to the people of the world that uh, what we was doing is protecting our house, protecting our family. And uh, that was what drives us to to win, to keep them uh, the, the the same place that they are. We didn't we we, did, we didn't beat them. We just delayed them enough time so the army can come and uh, and solve the problem. But still, we was seven uh, people against uh, something like eighty or hundred uh, terrorists. And what was uh, the difference between us and them? Is that we couldn't, uh, we didn't have the the luxury to lose. We had we had to uh, win this uh, battle. We could not lose the battle because if we lose the battle, the whole kibbutz will pay the price. It's, the whole family. It's a matter of us or them. There is no question. There is no question. It's us, and we fight. Uh, till the end and uh, we made a difference with a methodic of fighting uh, and they came to just to kill to kidnap to hostage to rape they didn't see by them eyes what they are really uh, uh, doing by kind of any methodic they just came to kill and uh, we stop we breathe a little bit and we take uh, chances but uh, calculate the chances that we must do our best to sa- to save these kibbutz. This is what we've done. They did kill people in your kibbutz. Yes, they they did yes. they did they did kidnap and uh, did they did they commit all the acts that they came to commit? Uh, it was one. It was amazing what you did yeah. to slow them down. But they they did kill and they did kidnap and they did rape, right? Yeah, uh, you know, Kibbutz Reim, it's uh, one and a half mile south to the Nova Party. Um, you probably hear about the Nova Party. Oh, you were, Party. That, you were that close. Yeah, yeah. 1.5 mile from uh, the Nova Party. Many uh, celebrate uh, people from the Nova Party arrived to Kibbutz Reim uh, to get a shelter. To uh, thought They thought that they will be safe in our Kibbutz. Unfortunately, many of them uh, were killed in our kibbutz. Uh, we lost uh, a lot of kibbutz members. We lost a lot of uh, citizens who came to high in his in uh, kibbutz Reim. And 
as well, we have a lot of flows of soldiers and uh, police uh, uh, officers and uh, policemen that uh, came to fight with us, unfortunately. I understand that these terrorists killed parents in front of their little children. Yes, there was one incident where the terrorists actually uh, they got into a neighborhood which we was not controlled, and they killed uh, uh, eighty-one uh, women in her bed that she couldn't uh, close the door of the shelter. They get into her house. Right. They killed her uh, like uh, in cold blood. Oh my God! And then they continue to the next house. It was a, a house uh, with the father and his uh, girlfriend and two children, 10 years old and 8 years old. The Hamas uh, goes to this house. Uh, the father fight with them. He was uh, with the by, him head, by his hands and uh, the terrorists came with the Kalachnikov rifle and uh, much more than uh, Kalachnikov. He fight until they murder him and his girlfriend, and they took a lipsticks and they wrote, the terrorists, yes, they wrote on the wall, the Hamas not murder children. Those two children had to stay at this house for eight hours until someone will go inside to take them to a safe place. And I had to take a very cold decision to leave them over there because uh, the house is already dirty and there is bodies. If one of the Hamas terrorists will uh, came again, he will see that there is bodies so he will not look for anyone else. And if the children will go out, uh, with someone, they will be like uh, ducks in a range. It will be unsafe, and probably they will uh, uh, murder by the Hamas who were in the fields all over the kibbutz. That's horrific. Um, did you think you would die? We didn't think about it. We thought about the kibbutz members they celebrate people who came to our kibbutz to hide from the Hamas we had no time to think if we were alive or dead and something like that actually I had uh, one time that I thought that I'm gonna die and that was uh, I was uh, trying to uh, rescue a weapon it was in a house that they burned till the ground. And I knew, it. I knew that there is a weapon inside a safe that I can get and to fight with him. I went into this house. My, uh, my foot, my feet uh, got stuck in something and I fell on my uh, hand. I, I burned uh, badly my hand, but uh, I succeeded to escape there to escape the house, and I can't fight. We cannot uh, stop and uh, treat ourselves. 
we have to fight and to protect uh, the rest of the kibbutz. You know, in this at this at that time, we are full of uh, uh, adrenaline, so mm-hmm. you don't feel pain, you don't feel pay, uh, fear. You had to do what you learned to do. Yeah. Um, how many how many members of your kibbutz survived? Do you know? Survived or uh, die? I can say how many die. Yeah. Uh, our kibbutz member uh, five were die, but we have another uh, tens of people that uh, came to fight with us. Uh, people who came from the party to hide themselves uh, in our kibbutz. So we had uh, a few tens of uh, people who were dying in our I believe kibbutz. I believe that something around 20, uh, all in all, soldiers, officers, and of course the members of the kibbutz, and uh, even the rescue of the, the refugees from the, from the party, I believe that all in all, it's something like 20. I think it's much more because uh, in front of our kibbutz, nearby the bus station, there is a, a bomb shelter where uh, filled up with 17 celebrating uh, from the Nova party. And the Hamas uh, arrived there with two hand grenades they drop inside and they mellow all of them. All the 17 uh, guys who were uh, hiding in this uh, bomb shelter. Yeah, it's so horrific. You are really heroes. You probably don't want to hear that, but you are. I've seen photographs of your kibbutz after the attack by Hamas yeah. and the damage they did, the, 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 the horrors they inflicted are extremely difficult to, to look at. So may I ask you how you both are now, a month later, how are you both after this horror, after the adrenaline has been, um, uh, is no longer present? How are you both? Uh, it's understatement to say that uh, it's awful. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, there is no words to describe what's uh, going on in our kibbutz now. It's uh, a completely neighborhood was uh, burned down. We have houses that uh, collapse. Uh, in other neighborhood, we have a few houses that uh, burn down to the ground. Uh, you can work on a hash, not more than uh, uh, not not other thing ash uh, of the the fire. Um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. You know the feeling uh, to see the kibbutz. Uh, after October the 7th, when we have uh, a lot of uh, uh, peace places with the green trees and green grass and flowers all over, because kibbutz, it's kind of a big agriculture family. Mm-hmm. And everything is green, everywhere is green, it's very beautiful. Now you see black, you see destroyed, destroyed houses. Uh, you see the tanks uh, scratch on the uh, uh, way. Uh, it's very frustrating. I want to add to what Elon says. 
that uh, accept the property, the damage, which there is a lot of property, the damage. I think that the most damage uh, is uh, to the to the people. The the now uh, hard to believe. Their faith is uh, very low. Uh, we are not believing the in our neighbors, which uh, they uh, trade us. After we took uh, care, we tried to to take care of them and to give them uh, opportunity to earn money and give them uh, our clothes, our our, our clothes, and even send uh, money to Gaza for uh, medical treatment. We was driving them to a hospital in in Israel, hospitals in Israel, and all that uh, become. Uh, uh, traders on the map that uh, came in with the Hamas into the kibbutz. They said and they marked where is everybody lives, where is the most important thing to take care of first, and that's that's the the most damage. I think that uh, we really believed uh, that uh, we can find a path and uh, and a peaceful uh, way to live. You know, unfortunately, I do not believe that there will be peace with the Palestinians as long as the Hamas or any other government authority that uh, legitimately uh, and officially represent them and does not recognize the existence of the state of Israel. In this case, I think we should separate. They will live them life. We are live our life, and let's see if other country around the world uh, will help them, or support them, or treat them by health, uh, to support them with jobs, with decent salary. Uh, I think no other country around the world uh, humanitarian than Israel. I will concentrate what Elon says. They have brothers around all Israel. They have Syria, they have Jordan, they have Lebanon, they have uh, Egypt. All these uh, brothers, the brothers, the Muslims, brothers. Why don't they take or take care of them and, uh, and uh, make them uh, live in honor and uh, let them uh, a place of honor? Uh, these Palestinians in Israel, in Gaza, and in the West Bank, and in Israel itself, they are living uh, the most respectably life that uh, all the countries around us can suggest them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you lost you lost Kibbutz members who were murdered. Uh, there were kidnappings that took place. You saved kids. You saved lives in your kibbutz. So, and you've just explained to us the the emotions that you feel now, four weeks and uh, a day later. When you both see demonstrations in some parts of the world, during which Hamas and their attack is praised, and Israel no. is condemned, and, no, and the calls are... Uh, hmm, sorry? 
Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but uh, I must open say, uh, in one hand, it's very funny, and the other hand, it's uh, frustrating and uh, makes me nervous, because I see a demonstration pro-Palestinian uh, that they ask ceasefire. Tell me, where is the Red Cross to see our hostages? None. We don't know what's going on with our hostages. They want ceasefire. Why to let them have ceasefire so they uh, will arm the uh, Hamas member again? Why Israel government support and uh, let humanitarian convoy to go into the Gaza Strip? You think it's fair? No, it's not fair. It's not fair. And we are doing our best to keep uh, innocent life. But there is no, I think, in my opinion, it should not be a ceasefire now. Now We need to finish the war. The equation is no Hamas, without Hamas. The Hamas cannot stay over there, period. There are uh, Nazis, terrorists, Hamas member. There is no other uh, defining for those uh, terrorists. We try our best uh, to let the Palestinians live a very decent life. Uh, we try our best not to act against any bullet that uh, crossed the fence, not only any launch missile that crossed the fence, but enough it's enough. I think it's uh, chutzpah. You know what is it, chutzpah? I do. I do know what it is. So uh, it's absolutely chutzpah to ask for ceasefire after their uh, murder, they raped, they hostage so many uh, Jewish people. And now the Palestinian, the pro-Palestinian all over, even though in Toronto, that they had today demonstration, pro-Palestinian demonstration, what kind of ceasefire they want? They want to kill us and then to ask for ceasefire? If you are a man and you want to fight, so fight a fair fight. Don't stand behind little children. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, you cannot uh, uh, behave like a, a, st a strong guy. And then to crawl like a little child, to be behind children, schools, kid garden, and to launch missiles from schools, from UNRWA. So what kind of ceasefire are you asking? What is the meaning of ceasefire? What is the meaning of the poor Palestinian who demonstrate against us? They should come to the Gaza Strip to live over there, to see with whom they are dealing, because the Hamas, it's not a human being. You know what they did. The oracle, the I'm sorry. Okay, things fine. that they've done to the Israeli citizen, I think it's the, the, the most horrible thing ever happened to the Jewish people. I want to say another thing, is that uh, the demonstration and the support of the, of the people that are not involved in this uh, conflict, because it's very, uh, very, very fun to come and be a part of a demonstration which you don't have any part of it, because it's like a festival. Gentlemen, I want to say something to you based on what you've just said over the last few minutes. 
you do know that there are millions and millions of people in the world who support Israel. There are millions and millions of people in the world find what happened on October the 7th to be abhorrent, to be so abysmally cruel as to defy description. There are millions of people in the world who never want to see this happen again. You do have a great deal of international support. Israel does. You does. You do. You are heroes. You stood with your members of your kibbutz. You didn't back away. You didn't let them just murder and rape and kidnap. You fought them. You fought them for five hours, seven men alone, fighting against 80 to 100 terrorists with Kalashnikovs, with RPGs, with grenades. You fought them. You saved lives. You are the example for the rest of us. I want to say something else, something uh, for closure. At, uh, at this point of time, it's our, our fight. We are fighting the Hamas. Uh, the Hamas is not the only radical Islam uh, organization in the world. And if we want say stop to these radical Islamic uh, organizations, today is it, it's Israel, tomorrow it's Europe, the day afterwards it's North America. This is how it, how it works. It's like cancer. You let it grow, it, you cannot gr uh, control the growth. It grow and grow and grow till it's uh, killed the hostage. Yeah. I'm so very, very sorry, but we have used up our time. We are, we are out of time. Mr. Cohen, Mr. Oren, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you for speaking with us in Canada. I can't thank you enough, but I, I, all I can say is thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. It was our pleasure uh, to uh, be in your show. Thank you. It's, yeah, uh, it's something that we have to, uh, we are holding the torch. Okay. We have to uh, give a torch away. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups in court? Uh, because uh, they are asking for more than we are able to give right now. Um, they are asking for more than we, well, no, hang on. You're asking. You're asking for honest answers. So there it is. That's the one where Mr. Trudeau was asked specifically about providing more support or proper support for military veterans. Because they, uh, we're not doing it because they're asking for more than we can give right now. All right. So you had uh, $10 million for Omar Cotter. Oh, yeah. We were supposed to forget about that, I guess. But we haven't. And it's these sorts of situations, these realities, these performances by the current prime minister, which are going to haunt him. Just remember his uh, effusive, effusive, effusive acknowledgement after uh, Fidel Castro died. You know, you really thought you were talking, you know, he was talking about a, a wonderful leader who was loved by his people. And then he caught Hades for it within hours, because the fact is that Castro terrorized and, and killed the Cubans who dissented against him. Mr. Trudeau didn't quite understand that. And then, uh, in typical Justin Trudeau fashion, he didn't go to the funeral for, you know, the great leader 
from Cuba because you've been intimidated by the voters who'd said enough. Well, uh, I, and I, I exchange a lot of emails. I hear from a lot of people in personal discussions about the political reality in this country, where we stand federally and where we're going. And Roy, what do you think is going to happen in the next federal election? Well, you know what I think is going to happen. I think the liberals are going to lose and they're going to lose big. And I told you that a couple of years ago. It wasn't a mystery then. It's no more a mystery today. And the conservatives will win. They'll have a majority government. You can quote me on that. But, but what happened? What happened because one of our guests was elected in the massive illiberal, did I say illiberal? <laughs> the massive liberal party win in 1993, where Jean Chrétien who said, uh, we're going to get rid of the GST. Um, I can't do that because it wrecks my voice. Uh, Jean Chrétien, he was in my studio, sitting with me, saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get rid of the GST. Sheila Copps was here with him. And, um, and, and they destroyed the majority government of the progressive conservatives, of then prime minister for two weeks, or two days, or two minutes, or two seconds, Kim Campbell, who was on this program a lot as well at that time. And they stayed in power for a long time. So, so my, one of my guests didn't, I was going to say, rode that liberal wave into, uh, into a seat in Parliament. He didn't, because he's very well-liked, very well-respected. He still is, Dan McTagg. And we have another liberal MP, former, who was a part of our, as I said last hour, Beauties and the Beast gang. And I, I say, I say we're a gang, because we're going to get jackets. We're going to get P&B jackets. Uh, and, and Michelle Simpson going to pay for them. She was, she was elected as a liberal MP in 2008. Put the pot up on it. Talk to them. Um, so, so Michelle, you're going to buy the jackets, are you? Let uh, me talk to her. I think you should be starting with Dan. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's got he more money? He's got more money? You know, into our demise. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just want to know who's buying the jackets, the B&B jackets. Oh, I, I don't know. Awesome. I am. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you both for joining us. It's an important conversation we're having. Because there's so much going on in the world, there are so many issues that we're facing from the economy, now the international turmoil, the questions about what leadership is really all about, and whether it's, a, it's whether an election campaign is all about, let's make the promises that the people are going to maybe not believe, but they'll, because they sound good, so we'll, they'll vote for us because it's another layer of icing on the cake. But the cake inside is still not, still not what it ought to be. Um, okay, so the question is, what happened to the Liberal Party that was elected in 2015, and Mr. Trudeau, who had a majority government at that time, Mr. McTagg, you rode into Parliament in 1993 with this massive Liberal majority. What has happened to the Trudeau government? Is it the mismanagement of the party by Trudeau? Is it just time? The time has run out? What's, what's happening in there? What happened to them? Well, thank you, Roy, and hello, Michelle. And uh, <laughs> how do I uh, how do I go back uh, several chapters? I think what is uh, very clear is that the Liberal Party of today is uh, not at all the same Liberal Party that uh, both Michelle and I served under, um, and a, a party that uh, strove to create opportunities that uh, 
had a pretty simple and very clear plan to uh, improve uh, an economy that had been, frankly, sputtering for decades before under both Liberals and Conservatives, uh, both Brian Mulroney and uh, and uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau and even John Turner for that brief time he was there. Two weeks. Clark, we had seen, you know, basically stagflation. The economy was moribund. Uh, and there was a sense that the country was coming apart. Um, how do you put all these things together? Uh, you know, I think in our time it was, here's our plan. It's not a great one, but it's better than nothing. And if someone can do better, then by all means, yeah. Do that. But you were elected. You were elected on a lie. Well, the GSC was one part of it. Well, no, but it was a lie. Well, of course it was. It was a lie because it, it, you went around the country. No, you look, wait a minute. Wait a minute. All the liberals, except for you and John Nunziata. We're running around the country bellowing we're going to get rid of the GST, and, and you didn't. And we all knew you weren't going to get rid of it, but you still had a massive majority because of the lack of popularity of the progressive conservatives and Kim Campbell. So this is where I think, Dan, with due respect, this is where I think Trudeau finds himself now. He's become the modern-day Kim Campbell. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what it is he's, he's, he is pushing, except for the green agenda. Uh, the net zero marketing scheme, which of course is not well defined, but uh, has brings with it 130 regulations and uh, policies, of which you know carbon taxes are only one or two, uh, and he is going to try to ride that horse right to the end uh, on the assumption. Is that he going to win? Believe that the cli- No, absolutely not. He's going to be he's going to be slaughtered, and uh, the liberals that have uh, gone around him are not like the liberals of the generation of myself and uh, Michelle. Where when you saw problems, you would actually raise these issues and you would push back on the leadership and the policies that are there. The difference between myself, Michelle, and the generation, the crop of liberals you you see here, is that they are so loyal to this uh, leader that uh, it doesn't matter how bad his policies or what his antics may be or how many scandals, at the end of all of this, they will support, They will go down with the ship, okay. uh, a ship that I say is now already taken on significant water. Yeah, it's listing. It's listing. It's listing pretty badly. Uh, Michelle, there are there are uh, there are many Canadians who are so cynical now about the political reality. Uh, where, where who will say, well, wait a minute, the loyalty of uh, of members of Parliament is to the job, to the great salary, to the fantastic pension plan. Yeah, that's where their loyalty lies. I don't know if that's overly cynical. I sometimes share that view. Not all of them. And you you took a huge chance by his being ethical, and you paid a tremendous price for being ethical. You were attacked by the party leader. You were attacked by the, uh, the whip. You were ordered not to speak in parliament. You couldn't acknowledge the death of a police officer who was a constituent of yours and a, couldn't acknowledge the death of, the, of a, a young Canadian soldier who died in Afghanistan. You were not allowed to do that because you decided that Canadians had the right to know how you were spending your tax dollars as far as uh, the uh, the expenses were concerned, and they didn't want that. So you paid a huge price. And the shortly, I mean, the liberals were in opposition then, right? Yeah. So you're a very principled human being. When you look at this liberal party of today and you look at the leadership of Justin Trudeau, and you know the guy because you sat with him in, in, in parliament. You didn't have any choice. That's where they sat you. You had to sit with Trudeau every day. What a thrill. Um, what's happened to these people? Roy, I think that um, too many of them have been worshipping at the altar of Trudeau. It's the name. Mm -hmm. The name and that's it. 
And beyond that, there isn't much substance. I didn't see it when I uh, sat beside him. In any of the discussions I had, it was simply he was a brand. And they all tried to brand themselves, except um, I, I would say not so much with Kretchen. It was the Liberal Party. And then under Martin, it became the Martin Liberals. And then uh, by the time we got uh, to Stéphane Dion, uh, there wasn't any branding, and he didn't have... He was a, a really good person, but he didn't have any caucus roots. Yeah, and he had, dog, and he had a dog named Kyoto. <laughs> kind of killed it for me. <laughs> exactly. But, and, and Ignatius, even less so. He came out of left field, yeah. and he thought he was the smartest guy in the room, and we got decimated to 35 seats. Yeah, we did. I was lucky enough to sit with some principled people like Dan, who, um, it, it's not a matter of age, who was able to mentor me uh, through the learning curve I had to go through. Yeah, I have to say this about Mr. McTagg. He said something on my program in 1993 before the election, and he he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And the first person to come into the studio after he didn't do what he said he was going to do was Dan McTagg. And he said, I'm here to take it. Lay it on me. And we did. So I've always had tremendous respect for, for you, Dan. You know that. We're friends. And, and you're, you're a principled guy. And you live, the, you, your, your view of the world of politics is exactly what it should be. So, all right. So uh, if, if, the, if we all three agree, and most Canadians agree, according to polling, that it's over now for Mr. Trudeau. It's over for... Stephen Gilbo, he can go back to these, whatever his, his group was called. Was it something? I forget what it was called. Um, Anarchist League. <laughs> is, is Pierre Polyev the, the answer? Do you, what, do you look at political observers. Do you see enough in the conservatives and Pierre Polyev to have confidence that he's going to provide the leadership that Canada requires? Mr. McTagg. Well, if he behaves the way the liberals did in our time and brings politics back to the center and focuses on what matters to Canadians, being able to make ends meet, uh, and not on you know tooting this horn, but affordability, uh, getting a government that isn't spending beyond its means, recognizing uh, our place in the world, um, I think these are things that uh, that will certainly help him win back. Uh, but Dan, do you see? Do you have confidence that he's going to do the very things that you say he needs to do? do you, when you see him, he's on this show a lot. Do you have confidence yeah, well, he's going to do what he says he's going to do? Yeah, I think he will, because I've known him for a long time, and uh, I've seen him in, in action, and many will disparage him. That's fine. That's part of the, uh, that's part of the game. Uh, but I think he's very committed to the policies that he's put out there. And some of those policies are so good that the Liberals are starting to pick up on them, uh, whether it's housing, uh, whether it happens to be some of the other policies that I've seen the Liberals pick up and chime in on very recently. I suspect that when his policies come out, he's going to have to make them look a whole lot like the Liberals of 1993, my generation, uh, of creating opportunity and saying this is what we stand for. 
And no, uh, not having a GST moment where you say you're going to do something and do something quite different. Uh, yeah. If he can hold to that, it'll be more than a one-term majority wonder. So neither of you is a member of Parliament anymore. Neither of you is a member of the Liberal Party any longer. And Trudeau's lost a lot of his key players. He got rid of a lot of his key players because they disagreed with him. And the one that always sticks out to me is Jody Wilson-Raybould. And we've spoken to Ms. Raybould on this, Wilson-Raybould on this program quite a few times. And once in a while, she and I are in touch. Um, but Michelle, uh, when you see Dan, uh, Dan McTagg, <laughs> when you see Dan McTagg, do you no, think he'll no, make a good prime minister? No <laughs> do you think Dan McTagg will make a good prime minister? Uh, oh, oh, absolutely. No, okay. I okay. really do. Okay. Uh, Pierre, Paul, <laughs> Pierre Polyev, Michelle, do you have Pierre confidence Polyev. in him? Um, I'm not quite as sold as Dan may be. He's making all the right moves to change, but he really has to buy in to the change that he's trying to show Canadians. Okay. You know, it's more than less brill cream and no glasses, and he brill really cream. has to soften the tone. <laughs> brill I, cream. Yeah, I think there's no question. <laughs> a little dabble, do you? <laughs> a little yeah. dabble, do you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But. Okay. Hey, listen, uh, we're, we're, we're out of time, but thank you both so much. I think that should be the, the party slogan for the next election. A little dabble, dabble do you? Dabble, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well done, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, really well done, right. Michelle. You, she's really good. Okay. Brill cream, a little dabble, do you? <laughs> What was it? Uh, you look so debonair, Bill Cream, a little dabble, do you? The girls love to get oh. their fingers in your hair. Boom, boom. Oh. Dan, it was a pleasure speaking with you again. I hope we do so soon. I, I think so as well, Michelle. It's good to hear from you, and uh, thanks for giving us this opportunity. Uh, it's always great to talk to you both. Thank you so much. So I remember about three years ago, two, three years ago, there was a report by RBC about net zero in 2050. And I spoke with the senior vice president of RBC on the on the air, and I don't remember the details of the report, but I do remember one sentence. And I asked about that sentence, and the sentence read, Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that got my attention. Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I needed a definition, and I didn't get one. Maybe it was just an overall descriptor. Chris Sankey joins us again. His National Post op-ed, Liberals, Net Zero Agenda, is a plan to kill the economy. Chris, Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what you're writing about, isn't it? Yeah. First, thanks for having me. Um, it's, uh, it's It's been very uncomfortable for many people, not just... Uh, your average Canadian, but it's also been very uncomfortable for Indigenous communities and, and people of colour. The Black and people of colour in Indigenous communities are also suffering from this, uh, this green initiative that the federal governments are pushing. Yeah, can, we just, uh, can I just break it down a little bit based on your op-ed? Sure. Uh, because you say, you're right, uh, in part, you're right, the federal government is pushing an aggressive emissions reduction strategy that could devastate the Canadian economy and threaten our way of life. This isn't just about oil and gas industry, port-related industries, transportation, infrastructure, health and education, and countless other sectors will be collateral damage, as well as the standard of living of everyday Canadians. And here's, uh, let me just ask you to expand on this. You're right, it isn't even clear the government's green agenda will do much of anything to lower 
the uh, emissions. And then you write about having the chance to listen to Adam Waterus, the CEO of the Waterus Energy Fund and former global head of invest- investment banking at Scotia Waterus. What did you find out, particularly, about, what did he say, and particularly, what did he say about EVs? Well, he made it very clear that uh, every time a EV is produced, Canada is increasing oil demand by five times the amount than it would be of a regular conventional gas car. And it's very, it was very eye-opening to me, and this individual lives and breathes energy. I mean, he was, I could have listened to him all day about what needed to happen. It's completely contrary to what's being pushed at the federal level. I, these policies make zero sense to me. And then I listen to a guy like Adam, and not just Adam, a number of individuals in that live energy. And everything that is coming out of Ottawa doesn't make any sense to me. And further to that, no one's ever met those targets or any of the targets. I, I mean, I, I stress it in the op-ed that we need to be responsible about this. What we're currently doing right now is pushing people into energy poverty. Mm-hmm. And what's what's frustrating for people like myself and others um, in small small town Canada and in our indigenous communities is that we're producing and working with a lot of the most responsible companies on the planet. And if, and if anybody wants to talk about emissions, uh, individuals living downtown Toronto and Vancouver and all these major cities need to take a long look in the mirror and realize that you're the biggest em- omitters. Yeah, you know what I found really particularly interesting and, and compelling was, and I, I have a couple of friends who have EVs and they swear by them. They love them. They say, look, like I'm helping the environment. You, you're right that, uh, that uh, Adam Waterers said it takes five times the amount of oil to build an EV than it does to build a conventional gas-powered vehicle. And in order to offset this difference, a person must drive an EV 120,000 kilometers using the electrical grid, meaning every time we build an EV, demand for, as you just said, the demand for oil goes up, not down. Absolutely. And that's right. You have to drive like virtually every day to be, to have the carbon offset, uh, according to Watchers, right? And I'm, I, I just don't get it. I, um, you know, I, I, I'm in the energy business. Right. If you're in the energy business, you're, you, you get an opportunity to be in front of some of the most brightest minds on the planet. I'll, I'll continue to say that. But what dumbfounds me is that people are, are pushing for this green initiative. What they don't understand is that we are, first of all, going to carve away thousands of miles of football fields to get to a mineral that everybody's claiming to be green, which is the battery, all the, all the components of a battery, lithium, cobalt, but they have a problem with a pipe that's a diameter of maybe anywhere from 40 inches to eight inches covered and not only covered by the land to which we all walk on, but the remediation process is, is incredible. You would never know you are walking above Thousands of pipelines in this country that keeps us functioning. But you want to dig up massive amounts of football field lengths to get these minerals. And further to that, realize that you're going to be actually increasing the demand for oil and gas just to get and accommodate those who, who profess to think 
that these green initiatives are really green. You know, Chris, I've often when, said you can't outthink those who aren't thinking. You know, it's, uh, they always say, you know, I, I, my, I remember my 85 year old uncle who, you know, he loved, he, he lived and breathed fishing, right? And he talks about how much gas and oil they use because he was still around when this initiative was happening. And he just said, don't argue with people that are not bringing common sense to the table. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't argue with stupid people. You'll, after a while, you won't know who's stupid. Well, they'll beat you with experience. Absolutely. Right. And I'm not, I mean, it's just extremely frustrating to me. And, and what also frustrates a lot of Indigenous communities, I actually just was speaking to one of our elected councillors yesterday. You have these Indigenous groups in Toronto and Vancouver that are a part of these urban uh, non-government organizations that continue to meet with the federal government and try to portray that indigenous communities are against oil and gas. That is emphatically untrue. The vast majority of the polls we took was up to 70%. Even when we did our PNW uh, LNG um, uh, debate and we talked about who was in favor and who was not, we had 20% uh, we had 70% around there, and then 20% was undecided, or 15% was undecided. I think it was 3% didn't vote, and only between four, I think around 4% said no. Mm-hmm. But the media portrayed it as if we were against all of this stuff. That is not true. And when you go, when you come out to Western Canada, you will see, you'll see anywhere, anything to do with mining, oil and gas development and extraction, the vast majority, a good portion of the contractors on site are indigenous owned and operated, whether it be private or community. And then the spinoff jobs from that, from the retail sector through the restaurants. I mean, everything we use, everything we touch and use from clothing to medical supplies to facilities to infrastructure to transportation, air, land and sea requires a significant amount of hydrocarbons. Yeah. And when people try to portray or try to claim we're moving away from fossil fuels, that's never going to happen. And everybody keeps trying to say, well, not in my life. No, it's actually never going to happen. So, so Chris, let me just, let me just focus on something that you have in this op-ed because, you know, we, we're on the air on three radio stations in um, the British Columbia, Kamloops, um, Kelowna and Vancouver. The BC, this is what you wrote. The BC provincial government is forging ahead with a set of policies that, as the Business Council of British Columbia put it, its own modeling shows will make BC's economy $28 billion smaller in 2030 than it would be absent these policies. This will set prosperity back more than a decade. This remarkable finding emerges from looking beyond glossy government reports to the raw modeling results of the estimated economic impact of clean BC policies that are studiously ignored in its public communications material. So by 2030, the BC economy, if I'm understanding correctly, is going to take a $28 billion hit. 100%. And where are we going to make up for that shortfall? There, you know, what's happening is here where the middle class is getting taxed to death uh, to make up for the shortfall. What people don't understand is right now, the province of Alberta is looking to pull their contribution to the CPP. That's an $850 billion contribution to the Canadian CPP. And it, it kind of dumbfounds me that people don't understand. When you take a look at what's helping many of our Canadians, fellow Canadians retire 
have a nice, comfortable life after they've taught, whether they're teaching or if they are CMP or they're a government employee, the vast majority of those revenues are coming from energy pipelines. It's coming from oil and gas and propane. It's a number of things that contribute to increasing so many of our retirement packages that require billions of dollars of money to reinvest so that our fellow Canadians could retire comfortably after working 50 plus years and working themselves to the bone. Where else are you going to make up for that shortfall? I, I don't know because it, it, economically, just, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an economist. I'm not an energy expert. But it makes sense to me that we have the natural resources that the world needs and wants. That's why the Chancellor of Germany came to Canada. That's why the Prime Minister of uh, Japan came to Canada. They didn't came, come here to get patted on the back and sent home and be told there was no business case for what they wanted, which was liquid natural gas. You're right. Here, quoting you again, Canada is about to enter a world of self-inflicted economic pain at precisely the time, and you spoke about this a minute ago, that indigenous communities are finally starting to harness their resource wealth. We finally made it to the corporate table where we have a seat, a say, and ownership, and now the federal government wants to take it all away. How's that for bad timing? And yet they tell you they're doing all they can and taking care of their responsibilities when it comes to First Nations. Look, I, you, what I, when I hear them talk about how that the Indigenous file is the most important relationship to this government, yet, just this past week, the Senate was about to hear from Indigenous leaders from the Inuit, the Métis, and Indigenous groups in Canada on how the carbon tax is killing their communities, and the Senate shut it down. How is that supposed to justify their quotes about making sure that indigenous priorities are number one in this country mm-hmm. when they won't hear from the grassroots people themselves of the devastation that we're being faced. I, I ran to ran into an old friend of mine just yesterday and he's about a two, two years older than him and his wife are living in a tent behind a gas station because they cannot find a place they could afford. Yeah, we're hearing about that more and more and, and, and more. And, you know, and that, winter's on the corner, that, on the corner. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's just devastating for me to yeah. see and hear. And yeah. I, so I, I gave him some money. And I, I'm trying to, I'm, I mean, I'm not even a part of the government. And I'm calling up people, advocacy groups, uh, anything I can do to help. Right. Not just him, but there's so many of these stories that are happening in our backyard. And how could you say as a Canadian we're doing justice to the indigenous population or try to help the middle class or the working poor when the working poor have become poorer. Yeah. Chris, you and I are going to have to pick this up again. Um, uh, we will. And then your op-ed in the national post is liberal net zero agenda is a plan to kill the economy. I do appreciate it. It's the first time we've had a chance to talk and I do appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. Listen, you know, what's going to change the outcome of this is technology with the energy sector, with the plan to manage and mitigate and eliminate bad, harmful emissions. That's how we win this game. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 